Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. The economist Chris Blattman is well known in academic and policy circles for his research and writing on peace, conflict, and economic development. Chris Blattman is a professor at the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago, and he is out with a brand new book, Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. The book boils down decades of social science around peace and conflict, using examples throughout history to explain why groups resort to war. The book is written for a popular audience, and in it, Chris Blattman identifies and defines five reasons why countries make an often ruinous decision to resolve conflict through violence. The book is very well written in a highly accessible way to understand what many academics know about war and peace. I will post a link to the book in the show notes of this episode, and I do want to plug that on May 3rd, the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation will host a book event with Chris Blattman, both virtually and in person in New York City. If you're interested in attending this event, please follow the link in the show notes of the episode to register. I think you'll appreciate this conversation. This is probably the third or fourth time I've had Chris Blattman on the podcast to discuss his work, and uh, this episode will not disappoint. All right, now here is my conversation with Chris Blattman. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Um, so I wanted to start our conversation where you start your book. You begin with a premise that it's actually rather rare and really an aberration to decide to resolve a conflict through war or organized violence. Can you explain that premise? You look what's happening in the world right now and our mind gets, our attention gets totally drawn to the carnage and just the horrible things that are happening in a place like Ukraine. And, and then all of the little settlements and compromises that actually usually get made sort of seem hard to imagine. We don't, we don't notice them, but, you know, I like to point out two weeks after Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, India accidentally fired a cruise missile at Pakistan and a common suit. And that's, and that's because war was just kind of unthinkable for both parties. It would just be so costly, so ruinous. You know, something that Russia and Ukraine Ukrainians are, are, are grappling with right now, obviously. Um, so they just strenuously want to avoid it. And so if India had actually attacked Pakistan or if Pakistan had taken this as a, not as an accident, but as a hostile act, we'd all, we could all see how the history books would write up that war. We could all see how it would be 
um, about this sort of long animosity and this long history. And then there's this quote unquote accident and do we believe it or not? And then we sort of sleepwalk into war once again, but that's not what happened. And so partly what I want to point out is not just 99 times out of a hundred, but maybe 999 times out of a thousand, that's, 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 that's what happens. And um, we just don't pay as much attention to it. Uh, and uh, and that's true when people have collected data on this. It's whether it's villages or ethnic groups or countries or political factions. Just it's just a tiny fraction that actually who could use violence use violence. They they find a way to attain their political goals through other means. Usually it's some kind of negotiation or bargaining. And so that's kind of the basic premise. It's something that scholars of war from and and, and practitioners of war from you know von Clausewitz to Mao have all said, you know. Uh, uh, war politics is just war without bloodshed. I think was Mao's quote, and and war is politics by other means, which is the Clausewitz quote. But but these are, you know, they're super costly means, so they're strenuously avoided. I love the phrase that you invoke in the uh, first chapter of your book: "Countries learn to loathe each other in peace rather than go to war." Yeah, I mean that's this is sort of the the this is the normal state of being. And, and so when I'm saying peace, I don't mean like that we're all sort of holding hands and singing kumbaya or something like that. Like a negative peace. Is, is yeah, the, yeah, exactly. This idea term of, of negative art. peace. Exactly. So it's just to say that, you know what, we're not, we're not actively using violence because there's nothing, I mean, we, we all love to live in a war where we're, a world where there isn't brinksmanship or we don't loathe in peace. And, and indeed many adversaries over time have sort of built interlinkages and, and, and built lots of padding and insulation from warfare so that you don't constantly live in this sort of terrible, terrible place on the intense standoff and stalemates. But, um, but, but yeah, but that, but, but the, the, the fact is, is we often much, much, much prefer a tense stalemate to the actual heat of a long, you know, prolonged violence. Uh, so you in this book identify and define five reasons why that general state of being, whether countries loathe each other in peace or otherwise find a way to avoid armed conflict or organized violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd love to kind of run through those five reasons or or five factors with you and sort of discuss some recent examples of those kind of forces in action. So uh, let's start uh, where you do with this idea of unchecked interests. What do you mean by unchecked interests? Well, it's a good example. Each one of the five is, is basically a way that some, it's something that, that causes us to overlook or ignore the costs of war. And, and so once again, it comes down to this fundamental point that war is ruinous we're going to stretch that, that it's so that that's such a powerful incentive for peace. It's like a gravitational pull, something equally powerful has to yank us out of that orbit. And, uh, and, and I, and the argument is that there's five basic ways that, that this happens. And most of the explanations for war actually fit into one of these five logics. And, and this first one is, is actually in some ways, the simplest it's saying that if the person who's deciding whether or not to go to war doesn't bear most of their costs. Perhaps they're an autocrat who uh, who who can basically overlook a lot of the civilian and soldierly deaths on their side. Then they're much more ready to use violence. Right? These costs are only a deterrent if you if you bear them. And and so now that autocrat or is still going to have an incentive to find a bargain because they they do face some 
to some costs, right? But but it also opens up the space. These unchecked leaders may have a private incentive for war. Maybe it's to rally the population around the flag or to distract them from something else, or maybe there's some private benefit that they get from war. And and so that's, that's sort of the core logic. And the idea that the unchecked interests is a driver of perhaps reasons why autocrats or authoritarians decide war seems kind of logical to me. I mean, if you look at, at right now, the costs that are being imposed on the Russian people in terms of the sanctions that are being imposed against Russia, which will yeah. you know cause you know immiseration among the Russian people. I mean, the fact that Russian people are suffering uh, is not something that may dissuade Vladimir Putin from you know continuing this war because he doesn't really sort of answer to, to the Russian people. There's no sort of democratic process that might um cause the Russian people to you know vote him out of office for you know setting this sort of ruinous course of action into motion. Right. And in the case of Russia, I mean I think listen, Putin has to pay at least some attention, indeed a great deal of attention to 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 making sure there aren't protests on the street and a color revolution. And he also there's a inner circles and then wider and wider circles of elites who he has to keep happy as well. That's the business of being an autocrat. But uh, so, but it does it does unencumber him from many of the costs. I think what the insight here for me in this war is is when, you know, when you say like what, why is it that he wants to uh, exterminate you know the flame of democracy in Ukraine and and make it more neutral and demilitarize it and so forth? Well, there people give a whole bunch of ideological reasons of glory and nationalism, which we'll get to because I I want to I think that we can we can give those some credence, but. But the fact is, is that the you know two successful democratic color revolutions in Ukraine on right on his border, amongst people whom ordinary Russians closely identify with as very like them, is very threatening to him and to his regime of control. And so exterminating that is is maybe the private incentive that tips him away from just ah, I'm an autocrat, therefore I don't have to incorporate some of the cost. Actually, I have a private incentive to waging this conflict in order to preserve my regime. And, uh, and so that's, in, that's maybe even enough for me to, I don't need necessarily these nationalistic aims. I just have to have this self-preservation. And so that's a, that's one way which you could tell the story of what's happening through, through, through the, through the prism of unchecked leaders. Uh, so you just alluded to glory and nationalism, which are two components of what you identify and define as intangible incentives that lead uh, to war. What do you mean by that? Well, what I was trying to say is, like once again, I said there's each of these five has like a common logic, right? And if the logic of unchecked leaders was ignoring the costs, or maybe that leader having a private incentive, the logic of intangible incentives is to say maybe the group. And maybe especially the leader, especially an unchecked leader, has something they value that they can only achieve through war. And and if that's the case, that ethereal thing, that intangible incentive is what uh, it might provoke you to attack in spite of the costs and ruin of war. And this is and this is implicitly, I think, what people are saying when they say Russia uh, Putin in particular, his inner circle have these ideological, these nationalistic 
beliefs about what it means to be a great power and to overcome the humiliation of the collapse of the Russian Empire, the USSR, and, and on and on. There's so many varieties of this. And that's saying that we can only attain this through conquest, maybe through fighting itself. And therefore, we're not going to be settled. We're not going to settle for anything less because we we want this thing and this ethereal thing. So it's not that we're bargaining over the territory or the policy space. We're just bargaining over this, this, this ideal. And, uh, and that's probably true. I think we tend to overstate this all the time. So we forget the strategic incentive to say, exterminate this potential democratic threat on my border. And we give a, a, a little, we, we put a little too much weight to the, to, to whatever ideological ambitions a given leader has, which are, they always have, but I, but I do think they're important and they help us and maybe they intertwine these two things and they help us get pretty far in understanding what happened. Is there an example of a perhaps other recent conflict you could think of driven by these intangible incentives, whether it's ideology or religion or, or something else that fits into this category? I mean, the the noble ones are are struggles, are ideological struggles for liberty and self determination, right? So any anti colonial struggle, any struggle of a small weak people against a, an imperial behemoth, um, you know, most most colonized and oppressed peoples sadly accept their oppression, right? They're they're effectively oppressed. It doesn't make sense to revolt. And whether it's the Mai Mai revolution in Kenya or the American colonists against uh, uh, Britain or, or, uh, or Algeria versus France or, or Ukraine, Ukrainians in this current conflict, I think we also can understand that there are times when oppressed peoples decide that we are not going to accept this cruel compromise on offer. That you asking, yes, we recognize that we're militarily weak. And therefore, we only deserve, or we can only, it's not that we deserve, we can only obtain semi-sovereignty at best. Uh, and and yet we refuse. The compromise on the table, we refuse for ideological reasons. We simply refuse to accept this. And so I think there's a whole class of struggles uh, that are exceptional uh, and that do happen. And that's a second intangible incentive at work here, right? We pay a lot of attention to Russia's and Putin's nationalist ambitions but we 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 sort of say well actually you know ukraine like so many of russia's neighbors and russians themselves probably should have rolled over in response to this aggressive threat uh and at least or at least compromised on some grounds and they refused and we can admire that and i do but uh but we should recognize that that's an intangible incentive that's helping helping lead to violence here uh, a third driver of conflict or reason uh, that countries might uh, not loathe each other in peace or otherwise find more peaceful resolutions to their conflict is this idea of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me actually, to set it up, let me actually talk about one of the others, which we'd come to, which is called misperceptions, which mm-hmm. which I think is easier for people to grasp in the, and, 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 and then, and then the uncertainty sort of, it, make, it little makes more, a little more sense once once we start with misperceptions, I think. And and misperceptions come very naturally to us, say, in the current conflict, where uh, the refrain is that um, Putin made a gross strategic error. He was overconfident about his own military strength and cohesion. He underestimated Ukrainian pluckiness, resolve, and military capabilities, and he underestimated the West's seriousness and unity 
in terms of levying punishments, especially sanctions. And uh, and I think those are probably true to some extent, right? It's very easy to construct an argument, which may be true. No one really knows how degenerated his autocratic inner circle is, how much misinformation they're being fed and they're feeding up the chain because no one wants to tell the autocrat bad news. All that's probably going on. And all the nationalism and grand ideals might be distorting everybody's vision a little bit. But but I think that tends to overestimate, or sorry, that tends to understate like just how uncertain a lot of this was beforehand. Like really talented military experts and regional experts in the West uh, made those same misassessments in many ways. And in all of these, you know, in some sense, Russia got a set of very bad draws out of the of all the things that could have happened, right? There was genuine uncertainty about Western unity, especially you know, Germany. Uh, there was uncertainty about Russian military capabilities. And there was a lot of uncertainty about the resolve of the Ukrainian political elite, whether or not Zelensky was going to flee, whether or not um, whether or not you know people would really stand up and fight along counterinsurgency and conventional war against Russia, and so on. And so we tend to like pay attention to the misperceptions and then we forget the underlying strategic logic of what do you do when beforehand all of these things are fundamentally uncertain, right? And so, and the fact is, is and this is where game theory comes into play, right? Misperceptions are come to us from psychology and they're important. We need to understand them. And, and they're, they're a key bucket. They explain, they, they explain a lot of conflict, but, and they explain conflict and why costly things happen. But the uncertainty is really fundamental. And it's to say that, well, listen, we're all approaching this with a different set of prior beliefs about what's going to happen. And sort of like in a game of poker, when I don't know what hand you hold and you don't know what hand I hold, it's sometimes in my interests. Uh, I know it's sometimes in, in your interests to bluff. It's sometimes in my interests to bluff. And then sometimes I will fold and sometimes I will call. And and the the fold is kind of like a compromise and the call is kind of like, going to war. And we know that it's sometimes amidst this uncertainty, because I'm worried that my opponent's going to bluff, because I'm Russia and I'm like, well, you Ukrainians are saying you're plucking resolve. You, the West, are saying that you're very angered by this, and this will be unprecedented in the modern era, and you're going to come together with sanctions. But how do I really know you mean it? Because, you know, I've drawn red lines before, just as I did in Syria, and then I crossed it in, uh, so you drew red lines and I crossed it and nothing happened. So, We've been down this road before, right? So there's a lot of uncertainty about that. And so sometimes it makes sense to, to sort of call out the West when you're worried that they're bluffing. And I think that's part of what happened here, right? We can't, you can only have misperceptions and mistakes in a world of uncertainty. So let's not discount the role of uncertainty, the concerns about bluffing, and then the strategic incentives that actors may have to, to do something, undertake something as costly of war as war admits that uncertainty. To what extent do sort of psychological challenges like mirror imaging uh, contribute to misperception and uncertainty? I know, you know, the political science, Robert Jervis recently passed away, right. um, you know, has written a lot on the idea that, you know, when countries assume or leaders assume that their incentives align with the incentives of their opponent or their views of what's rational are the same as that of their opponent, this is what often leads to misperception and bad decisions that lead to war. 
Yeah, I, I think that's exactly one of them. I think what I wanted to do is I wanted to say, listen, there's a million human foibles and mistakes and behavioral economics and psychology and behavioral science have given us a thousand biases that we have. Uh, my question is like, which ones are relevant in big groups and that what are the mistakes that don't get filtered out by our good bureaucratic processes? Which ones persistently, which mistakes do we persistently make even when the stakes are high? Right. So, so there's a lot of behavioral biases, like whether or not I buy too expensive a gym membership and don't go enough. Right. But, but that, that tends to go away if the gym membership gets super, super expensive. Um, but, but work gets super expensive. How do we keep making behavioral mistakes when it's just so costly and over a long period of time. And, and, and that sort of led me to focus on a handful of things. I would say some of them are more psychological biases and some of them are bureaucratic biases. So when I talked about the logic of autocracy, where you have to have a loyal inner circle, but that loyal inner circle may insulate you from certain kinds of information. That's not the fact that I'm psychologically biased against updating. And I don't, can't see how my other opponent thinks, but it's rather there's an institutional structure that prevents prevents me from getting good information in a regular, predictable, and sustained way. But there are these other human, much more psychological biases. I think what you described, I would call projection bias, the idea that we project our own interpretation of events and values onto others and persistently fail to sort of see the conflict or see the issues from their point of view. That's a good example of a much more psychological error that I think leaders and, and, and groups of leaders are prone to make. Another I point to is overconfidence. I think there's a lot of evidence that not just political leaders, but business leaders, CEOs, every mutual fund manager on the planet, I presume, suffers from persistent overconfidence, even over long periods of time, even over hugely high stakes decisions. And, and so we need to understand these a bit better. I chart out what we know, but and why we sometimes have overconfidence, why does overconfidence matter some of the time and not others is a question we need better answers to, because I don't, I think we've been distracted by all these little biases. And these are the big biases that I think as a social science, we have to understand more. Uh, so we've discussed unchecked interests, intangible incentives, uncertainty, misperception, and your final sort of reason countries go to war despite uh, the incentives typically aligning against war is mm -hmm. what you call a commitment problem or commitment problems. Uh, what do you mean by that? Right. And this is, a, this is a concept like many of the strategic concepts I've talked about that comes from decades of strategic thinking, which is otherwise known as game theory. And this is one of the more subtler and subtler um, concepts with one of the least intuitive names uh, that we inherit. Uh, yet, Arguably, it's one of the most important, generally. most Many political scientists would argue that every long war uh, and every great power war has a commitment problem at its root. And people use it, use commitment problems to understand everything from World War I to the Iraq War. And, and there's a simple version of it that I think everybody would get. And, and that's to say that, listen, if my enemy is weak now and I'm strong, but I know my enemy is going to be strong in future, uh, then I have a window of opportunity to attack and cement my advantage. And now that's going to be super costly. So my enemy can say, listen, I'll tell you what, you don't attack me now because we both know this is in your interest. And I promise that in future, I will you know, only take partial advantage of my strength. 
and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll cede certain things to you. And sometimes we're able to do that. That's what constitutions do, right? That's, that's how you get smaller and minority groups to participate in, in a big political project like a nation sometimes. Um, but that's not always possible. There's a difficulty of making that commitment, especially in the international realm where there's more anarchy. And so in those cases, you're like, listen, you just can't really guarantee me. You can't credibly commit, and therefore I'm going to attack. And, and this is a, a variety of the commitment problem called the preventative war. And, and there's a version of it that, that influenced, I don't think there's a hard commitment problem here in the Russia-Ukraine instance, but there's a version of it that you hear a certain window of opportunity, you know, uh, stories that is your first clue that something's happening here that's narrowing the range of possible deals that 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 listen Russia's probably at its peak relative strength its peak strength relative to Europe and Ukraine because its growth is starting to stagnate and and Ukraine could grow closer to the west economically grow be armed by the west harder to invade in future so now or never and I think there's an element, and it's hard for them to commit to do otherwise. They have constitutional provisions saying they join NATO. How could they really credibly not, you know, uh, threaten to, how could they credibly commit not to arm or, or to grow and, and grow more powerful in the future? So that kind of thing was probably a little bit at work here. Um, and, and, and so, I, and, and that's probably the most common kind of commitment problem in history. Yeah. I mean, this idea that a, you know, a dominant power or the stronger power will seek to preempt the rise of, of a fast rising power in sort of initiate conflict is kind of like international relations, you know, theory 101, the, the, right. the, the Thucydides trap is you know, exactly. commonly referred to the idea that sort of the, the strong Athens sought to um, denude the, you know, rising power Sparta. Uh, yeah. And, and I, I, you know, now, it turns out that a rising power isn't enough to bring about a commitment problem because there's lots of ways in which we do make commitments. Sometimes that rise is not so sudden or great that you can't actually find a deal. So, so I, my own reading of that is that maybe the Thucydides trap was there, there was, there was a commitment problem in the Peloponnesian war, but maybe not for the, the reasons a lot of people think and not just that it, was, it wasn't just the rise of Athens uh, it was actually the fact that there was a third player, that there, a neutral party who could join with Athens and then very quickly overwhelm the capacity of Sparta. And so, so there's, there's, I think you need to tell more nuanced stories than many people do to actually get at real commitment problems, which is something I get into in the book. But, you know, the, if only we overemphasize the strategic forces leading to war most of the time, most of the time, it's the opposite. We, we, take these intangible incentives and these misperceptions, which have a little bit of explanatory power. And we're like, you know what? That explains everything. That Putin's nationalist ideologies and his mistakes are the whole reason we're going to war. And, and it's a way of infantilizing our enemy. I think it's our own bias. I think it's actually a misperception that we bring and it leads us to make strategic errors. Um, and so we just have to be, we have to accept those explanations as partially true, but not, but be cautious with them. Uh, so lastly, how could policymakers or really anyone understand these drivers and sort of reverse engineer them to yeah. prevent the outbreak of, of war? Well, I mean, I, I think what, one thing that's really clarifying and helpful to me is to recognize that most interventions and, and things that we do to promote peace in the world work if and when they address one of these five factors. And so 
sanctions, for example, sanctions are a way to fix the unchecked leaders and intangible incentives pr- problem. You're not internalizing the cost of war and you have some, some other ideological reason for fighting. Well, guess what? We will give you a counter incentive. Um, so, so that, that tells you that's the logic of sanctions, which is, I think, informative. And it also tells you, well, when will sanctions work? Well, sanctions will work if, the, if, the, if that's actually the thing driving the war. If the thing driving the war is uncertainty or commitment problems or, or other strategic forces, then, then actually sanctions might not be the right tool. And so I think they start to clarify when our tools apply. Likewise, peacekeepers. Peacekeepers are a way to reduce uncertainty between armed forces by exchanging information and, and by also holding, by creating commitment to deals. And, and so peacekeepers, that's often a problem in a lot of, um, of African civil wars. I think it's one reason why they've been somewhat successful there. And it's why I think I would be more pessimistic about peacekeeping in a lot of other contexts, including one where there's a, a, an ideological conflict at stake and, and the party, one party might start to see peacekeepers as, as the enemy. So I think Sorry, it's just to interrupt you there. I mean, yeah. that's a key challenge for peacekeepers in places in which there is a jihadist insurgency. Exactly. Um, places like Mali or uh, elsewhere where, where there is that, you know, where peacekeepers are routinely targeted uh, you know, by jihadists. You know, there's a tendency, and and it, to me, there's a larger tendency that happens in this peace building world to sort of think in terms of like off the shelf solutions and best practices. That is, that is problematic. That sort of says that says, listen, everybody kind of gets the same package after war, right? You know, you get your mediators, and then your DDR, and then your peacekeepers, and and, and DDR is uh, disarmament. Yeah. Uh, and reintegration and exactly. demobilization. Exactly. Not Apologies. in that order. Sorry. <laughs> exactly. And and then ultimately, and all this other series of things, up, and then three years after the peace agreement, you get a, a, an election for the president and nobody else. And, um, and, or we just apply sanctions as a rule or in American cities, we just, there's a sort of off the shelf policing tactics and, and violence reduction tactics that, well, if this worked in Philly, I'm going to, use it here. And that's a problem because imagine you went to the doctor and, and you, you were like, you know, doc, I, you know, here's the thing I'm not feeling well. And he's like, Tylenol, Tylenol and radiology. And you'd be like, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't even tell you what was wrong with me. Uh, and you're prescribing a treatment. And, and he's like, well, you know, t- Tylenol radiology, that combination often works. And you're like, mm, I don't know. Well, why don't we diagnose this? And we would all instinctually like react and recognize that that was a, that was a bad doctor. And yet I think that's a lot of us are bad doctors in when it comes to peace building at home and internationally, because we kind of just prescribe Tylenol and radiology without just sort of thinking about the diagnosis. And that's kind of what I want to do with the five is like, these things only work if the diagnosis fits the cure. Uh, and, and every diagnosis is going to be a little bit different. So every cure is going to be a little bit different and, and, and kind of the framework I'm giving, which is this framework bestowed to us, I think by a lot of social science is one that's just going to help us make better diagnoses, uh, and just by making sense of all of this millions of reasons and just sort of recognizing that there's a few common logics. Uh, well, Chris, thank you so much. It's a great book. I know we, we talked a lot about, um, international conflicts and civil wars, but your book also does a really interesting job of using these frames to treat, you know, things like gang violence or, or just you know, violence in cities in general and in really fascinating ways. Right. Which I should specify is my day job, you know, this, so I, I most comfortable and, and that's how I came to thinking about international wars in this context is sort of saying, well, with all of this apparatus we have for understanding international conflicts is actually really useful for 
understanding, not just civil wars, but like wars between villages, wars between gangs, the kind of violence on a day-to-day basis I'm studying and developing programs to reduce. And, and I just saw a lot of gain some trade by, by actually applying these lessons from one level at another level. And that's kind of what brought me to bring to writing this book. Well, it, it's a great book. I'll post a link to it in the show notes. Congratulations. I always love reading everything you write. Uh, it's a great book. Everyone should buy it. Thanks. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Chris for speaking with me once again for the podcast and for his wonderful book. Uh, And again, do follow the link in the show notes of this episode if you would like to attend either virtually or in person uh, his book event in New York City on May 3rd. All right. We'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.